Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley and I'm super excited for this week's show. We are celebrating Italian Horror Day for June Sploitation by talking about the debut feature of Dario Argento, 1970's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, which means I am joined by the master of suspense himself, JB. Tonight, I'm going to kill you in Italy. <laughs> that was beautiful. How's your gene exploitation going? Well, it's going swimmingly, although I was looking at the choices that I've made thus far. And although I'm having two tons of fun, my choices are completely conventional. I'm It, it, it couldn't be more safe. I'm going with the old standards, so... 80s action was Midnight Run, and Slasher was Halloween, and Henry Silva was Code of Silence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm having fun, but it's it's far from adventurous. I've mixed it up a little bit, but I'm watching. I'm rewatching a lot of stuff, um, and in some cases, I don't even realizing. I'm, I don't even realize that I'm rewatching stuff. It's that phenomenon where I go to log something in Letterboxd, and it tells me I watched it in 2019, and I have no memory of ever having seen it. Um, but yeah, I've been having a good month too, because I'm like you kind of playing it safe and watching stuff that I know I like. And so yeah. I'm enjoying myself. Comfort food for the soul. Although I finally saw the original Django for the first time and, uh, it blew me away. And, uh, today I realized that, uh, you know, Sergio Corbucci directed that and lo and behold, that's the director of all of Rick Dalton's um, Italian Westerns and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, too. So He's the second Corbucci best got, uh, director of Spaghetti Westerns. Which he pretty much was. <laughs> but um, but uh, I, I think it's so great that uh, Tarantino went with a real person for that and not something made up. Yeah. I watched a Sergio Corbucci movie for my Western day as well. I watched a couple of Westerns that day, but I watched... Um, Oh, gosh, what's it called? Uh, the Mercenary with Franco Nero. I don't know if you've oh, ever yeah. seen it. Yeah, it's good. I, I have not seen it. I know I was I was telling you over the weekend that um, in the first maybe 15 seconds of Django, we see a lone figure in the desert dragging a coffin behind him, and I'm like, well, you got me. And that's <laughs> the greatest opening. That's the greatest opening of a movie ever. Because I, I can imagine the audience back then. Who is he? What's in the coffin? <laughs> Great way to get, get the audience involved. And the answer for what's in the coffin is very satisfying. Yes, I shall not spoil it. But although, as the movie goes along, different things are taken out of the coffin and put in the coffin. Right. There's not only one thing in the coffin. I'll leave it there. And... Um, I was watching the Arrow 4K Blu-ray, which is just about as beautiful as it gets. And I bring that up because the film we're talking about today is also coming out in two or three weeks on 4K Blu-ray. And I watched just the plain old crummy Blu-ray. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't see that there's a lot of room for improvement because... Well, this Blu-ray Blu was a 4K restoration, right? Right. So maybe... You know, everyone expects there to be that magic moment where, like, when we went from VHS to DVD, and that 
happens a lot less often, but the the regular the the last time Arrow put out the bird with the crystal plumage on Blu-ray, it looks immaculate. Yeah. So um, other than the extras, which are plentiful, there's it's one of those packages with all the paper extras and things. Um, you, you can't go wrong with uh, any of the Arrow releases. Speaking of new Blu-ray releases, yes, a few weeks ago or months ago, I no longer process time like regular human beings. Uh, we were talking about the 1976 King Kong. Yeah, we were. Uh, and bemoaning the lack of a decent version. That well, was 2020, fact, by the way. You're kidding. No. <laughs> I thought we did that one like in February. I would have guessed that as well, but no, I think it was December of 2020. You know what I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of Monkey Punch Lizard. Oh, sure. Yeah, we did that in like March. Okay, when we talked about the 1976, well, see, Shout Factory got the idea from us, and it takes a while to get the rights and do the restoration. Anyway, here's my point. The new Shout Factory Blu-ray of the 76 King Kong not only looks terrific, but they've included the TV version, right? which edited back in, I think, more than an hour of footage. I sat down and watched it. Um, if you think the original is a little tedious, <laughs> let me give you a preview. There's a whole new sequence at the beginning of the expanded version where they show them loading the ship. Ooh. And you watch and you're like, well, I can kind of see why they left this out of the theatrical version. I mean, this is like, you know, the the old saw about asking someone what time it is and they tell you how to make a watch. And none of this new footage, I'm assuming, because I haven't watched the TV version yet, includes King Kong, correct? Because otherwise it would have made the theatrical cut. Right. And um, they sort of prepare you for what you're in for, because the only way to access it is as night one, night two. Oh, boy. So they are they're preparing you. And uh, before I forget, one of the commentary tracks is a long interview with Rick Baker, which they've edited to to be more like a, a standard commentary track. And I cannot recommend, uh, this is on the theatrical version, not the TV version, but I cannot recommend this enough. It's sort of the history of his career, the history of a certain type of special effects. It's amazing, um, even if you just you know turn the movie off and listen to it like a podcast. Cool. All right. It's well worth everyone's time. Um, besides Django and King Kong, have you seen anything good lately? Well, uh, courtesy of friend of the site Mike Pickley and his little outdoor screening the other night, I got to see Rolling Thunder, which I don't think I had seen in 20 years. Okay. The last time I saw it was on Laserdisc, and unless I'm mistaken, wasn't that one of those films that was hard to see for a while? Um, not to my knowledge, but you could absolutely be right. It was sort of out of print unless you had a copy or something. And of course, uh, two days ago, uh, we were all at the music box, uh, and I was celebrating my first time back in a real movie theater in 15 months, um, with matinee and the tingler. And was it just me or was that really fun? No, oh, yeah, it was super fun. Um, how was it being back at the movie theater? Well, 
You know, I, I love that place. It's the happiest place on earth. It's still, it still irks me when I wear the mask inside the movie theater because mm-hmm. I've been vaccinated, as all of our listeners should get vaccinated. And so for, for matinee, I kind of had to play this game where I was always eating or drinking. <laughs> I kind of did the same thing. And I, I can't be the only person, but, you know, in two weeks I won't have COVID and I, I will be, uh, I will be vindicated. Um, I, I can't wait until I don't have to wear the mask cause it sort of bothers me, but I wore it. And as I told your lovely wife, the space between the armrests at the music box is a very specific finite measurement. And when I sat down uh, Sunday afternoon for the first time in 15 months, I could not believe that I had not gained more weight. <laughs> I mean, that is a very finite, I mean, right. that's going to tell you. Right. It's not like they're moving the armrest, right. um, which should be a euphemism for something. Um, but that felt really good. It's like, oh, I thought I really went to shit, but... Apparently, <laughs> according to the music box armrests, I did not go to shit as much as I thought I had gone to shit. So that's always a positive. <laughs> I thought both movies played really well. I was a little nervous about some ironic hipster laughter during The Tingler, but I felt like there was just the right amount and people seemed to be in the spirit of things. Because during matinee, there was a little bit of that music box phenomenon where it's like, I'm laughing the loudest. I get yeah. this the most. Uh, and it was fun to see that movie with an audience. I haven't seen it with an audience since 1993. Uh, and yeah, it's play. It, I mean, yeah, it's so funny. Um, there's all these little jokes that still continue to crack me up. And some of them got big laughs on Sunday and some of them just seem to fly right past the audience. Uh, but that is one of my very favorite movies. I love it so much. I have never enjoyed the shook up shopping cart more (laughs) because of our audience's reaction on Sunday to the way the shopping cart shows affection to Archie Han <laughs> and Han's not sure, but he kind of starts petting the shopping cart and Naomi Watts says he likes you. <laughs> um, that had never played quite as well. And I think the other phenomenon that you're talking about, the inappropriate hipster laughter, um, I really think everyone was enjoying matinee. I think there's a bunch of people who came for matinee and didn't, uh, stay for the Tingler. Yeah, it seemed to be less full for yeah, the second there were, movie. There were fewer people, and and that helped. But I mean, there are some things in the Tingler that are just so so loony. Um, it's kind of nice to hear the laughter yes. of oh, I, it's not just me who thinks that's crazy. Right. The <laughs> best example was spoiler alert for the 1959 The Tingler um, when Ollie says, "I'm just going to take my wife home." And he picks up the dead body <laughs> wrapped in the blanket and he walks out the door and Vincent Price is like, it's okay by me. That, that was that was transcendent. I can't get the line of Vincent Price's wife saying, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate finding the tingler. I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> and uh, to those of you who are looking to do uh, a master's thesis of some sort in popular culture, I was watching the tingler 
And thinking about all the really horrible acid marriages in the films of William Castle, I think there's a master's thesis there. I think you might be right. Or maybe Castle just noticed how well it played because the bad marriage in House on Haunted Hill is really entertaining. They hate each other and they spend the whole movie trading barbs. Um, and so he just told Rob White to include something similar in The Tingler, which was the next right. movie. Yeah. Um, how was it uh, having the music box popcorn again? Well, I had a lot of it, sir. <laughs> um, and uh, I may be wrong, but I don't think I am, because I've been going to movies in the city for a really, really long time. I think it's the best popcorn in Chicago. It might be the best popcorn in northern Illinois. I would agree with it being the best popcorn anywhere. I haven't been everywhere, obviously, but every theater that I go to, I get popcorn, and including you know out-of-state theaters, and I've never had better. It's, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like, um, I'm going to use a, a, a comparison that not everyone would be familiar with. Um, if you're Italian, like the people who made the bird with the crystal plumage, see how I got us back on track there? I appreciate it. Your mother's spaghetti gravy is always the best. Right. And then you, like, go to an aunt's house, and hers is different. It's spicier. It's sweeter. Your favorite is always your mom's. Right. And my mom's spaghetti gravy is the music box popcorn. It's a mixed metaphor, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> I get it. Speaking of being Italian, I don't think I've told this story on the podcast yet, and I'll keep it short. I thought I was Italian. You are because Italian. Because I, I was adopted by two Italian people, and I love the food so much. Right. But in the last two years, Ancestry.com has proven to me that I am not, that I am Scottish and Irish. So there. But, but you were uh, raised Italian, and therefore will, you are honorary Italian. I will claim to be Italian for the food. Yes. And for the filmmakers, because... And the hot-blooded, fiery temper. As I was watching The Bird with the Crystal Plumage today, and let me tell you, I am so glad I watched it again. Um, I was so taken by how assured it is for a first feature. Yeah. It's really, really well made. But the reason why I'm glad I rewatched it was, when I was first introduced to Argento, I watched a whole bunch of them in a row, and I wrote a series of columns, and I discovered that I was conflating all of Argento's films into one. So I'm watching Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and I'm like, oh, I'm looking forward to that scene where he goes off into the woods and visits the artist. Well, no, that's not in the Bird with Crystal Plumage. And I'm, I'm looking forward to blind Carl Malden showing up. No, 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 that's not. And so all these things I thought were in the Bird with the Crystal Plumage are not. Um, although on this rewatch... I thought it was actually successful at not falling prey to that second act lag that I've talked about, that a lot of giallos start like a house on fire and the last 10 minutes are golden and then the middle kind of lags. Um, I was wrong about the bird with the crystal plumage. Argento's really good at throwing something new up 
on the screen about every 12 to 13 minutes. When he there really, there really isn't any downtime. No, when he is on his game, which is really through the 1980s, I would say we could argue about you know something yes. like the Stendhal syndrome or something. There's 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 some decent stuff post opera, but opera is kind of his last great movie. Um, I would agree. He doesn't really fall victim to that phenomenon that you're talking about where it starts big and ends big and in the middle is yeah. a bunch of dead space while we wait around. You, you know, I think about something like Tenebrae, which is when I'm watching it is like my favorite of his movies. It's probably my second favorite overall, but like, I mean, it's just set piece after set piece after set piece and bird with yeah. the crystal plumage isn't there yet, but you can tell that that's where he's going. And there are set pieces. Oh, if, absolutely. If Tenebrae is not your favorite, your favorite Suspiria, right? Correct. Okay. Um, yeah. Arrow has put that out as a 4K Blu-ray that will knock your eyeballs out of your head with the color transfer. Yeah, I still don't have a 4K player or a 4K TV, so I haven't upgraded anything to 4K, but I do have the... It wasn't Arrow. I think it was Synapse? Yeah. The Steelbook that they put out <laughs> where it's like a 4K restoration of the movie and i got to see the 4k restoration theatrically which incidentally just screened at the music box last week um they're uh shot on film series they're projected on film series well they projected that as a dcp because i think it was the the 4k restoration they didn't project that one on film oh um, well, it was wasn't that like the theme uh, most of them were projected on film but suspiria was a dcp is my oh. memory from looking at the website or was the real theme, you need to see these movies in theater? I think that was what it was. It was like back on the big screen. Right, because the first week was, look at how these look. Right. And the second week was, these movies take place in movie theater. <laughs> right, and The Tingler sort of does. And uh, Cinema Paradiso? No, I have, I, I have no argument with the music box. They can do no wrong. In fact, I kept wondering Sunday, they're going to do The Massacre, right? I don't know. I mean, I guess it reduced capacity. By October? Don't you think? I don't know. I don't think they could sell it out. Yeah, I don't know. I'm looking forward to it. And, of course, I'm calling it by the wrong name. Right. Because it's now called the Music Box of Horrors. Um, My back has gotten so bad that even the second movie was hard for me. I had to get up and stretch out at one point. So there's no way I could do a 24-hour marathon anymore. The seats, I remember when they redid the seats at the Music Box, and it was a question of should we remain historically accurate, which they decided to do, and they just replaced the seat cushions, and or should we go the full Tivoli route? Because the last time you were at the Tivoli, you saw that theater was built in the late 20s, but they have very modern seats. Yeah. And... I thought at the time that maybe the music box should have done that too, but too late. Yeah. Yeah. If you really want to get punished, the old seats at the Virginia where Ebert Fest was okay. were, were torture implements, <laughs> but I just realized they replaced those with modern seats. I just haven't been back there since they did that. Right. Okay. Um, so back to the bird with the crystal plumage, uh, yes. back to favorite Argento movies, like just talking about set pieces. 
Um, it is a remarkably assured debut, which is kind of what you were getting at, because, you know, he's coming out of, he's an apprentice director, he's a screenwriter, he famously is a co-writer on Once Upon a Time in the West, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, and this is his first feature. And again, I don't think it's everything that we see from him, but it's one of those first features that announces a voice in such a specific way. Um, and really kind of popularizes the Jalo movie. I know there's all this debate about what's the first Jalo movie. And I think popular opinion is that it's Mario Bava's the girl who knew too much. Um, right. As sort of codifying on the, on the special features of the bird with the crystal plumage disc, Cat Ellinger mentions a bunch of other precursors, right? You know what, what film I've never heard mentioned in terms of, bird with the crystal plumage though and when i was watching it this morning i thought uh michelangelo antonioni's blow up came out in 66 yeah and that's about a young man who witnesses something unusual and is sort of plagued by it as the film goes along and i wondered why that is never brought up as a possible influence on bird with the crystal plumage the two films have a lot of things in common yeah i could see that and the weird like forays into the art world and stuff like that, which seems to come up again and again in Giallo movies. This popularized the genre in the way that like, 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 like Halloween's not the first slasher movie, right? But it popularized the slasher movie and that's the movie that everybody ripped off and imitated. Definitely. So this isn't the first Giallo movie but it's the one that kind of popularizes the giallo and this is the movie that everybody's ripping off and imitating. And I'm watching it and I'm, I'm, I'm obviously there's a sequence at the beginning where, uh, through a series of, uh, bad, uh, fortune, bad, uh, unfortunate accidents, Tony Musante winds up, the lead character winds up between two big sets of glass doors and he's trapped in this sort of glass case and he's witnessing a crime. And the way that Argento shoots that is so amazing. Mm -hmm. And A, it's really meta because obviously, like Hitchcock before him, Argento is placing his main character in the position of the audience. We're, we're in a glass box. We're sitting there watching and we can't influence the action and the people on screen can't hear us. But also, given that we've just been to that weird museum of birds and seen glass case after glass case after glass case um, of birds, which M the Musante character has written this book about birds, and he doesn't want a copy of the book. He just wants the check. Right. Which I think is a really interesting um, touch in terms of the script. But if you look at the way that entire opening sequence is shot, you wouldn't guess that it was his first film. And even the way it's edited is really interesting, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, that, it's funny because this was probably only my second time seeing the movie. I thought I had seen it like a bunch of times. And I'm realizing it was only probably my second time. And I was completely misremembering that opening sequence because... The only other time I ever saw it was a couple of years ago. I was doing a 24-hour marathon at home by myself in my basement. And 
you guys came over and we watched Magic. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. And that was late. I mean, we finished that at probably one or possibly two. And then after you guys left, I started The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And that was my first and only other time seeing the movie. So I was positive that in that opening sequence, I was watching a murder. But it's very important that it's not a murder. It's an attempted murder. Yes. So I completely misremembered that whole thing. And that's another thing, because obviously I had seen the film before and... I didn't quite remember the twist at first. And I wondered if I was finally going to experience if enough time went by, if you weren't crazy about movies like we are, if enough time went by between screenings of psycho, might you forget what the twist was and get to experience it again? I mean, I think it's possible. I I think it's possible. And I was trying to see, if I not that I could make it happen, but I was trying to see if it would happen because I saw Bird with the Crystal Plumage maybe two years ago. But as it turns out, as the sequence played out, I I remembered from my previous viewing um, what he's hiding from you. I that did not. I think the twist is amazing, and it's so rare to find a film with the twist that plays fair. Yeah. I think Psycho's twist plays fair. I've always been a big fan of the original Scream's twist. Um, and I think this one plays fair too. And I think that's a big reason for the film's original popularity that the audience was honestly surprised by the twist. Well, it sets it up so well and uh, you know, we can try to talk around it, but it, it replays it for you enough times Oh yeah. As he's trying to piece through it, it keeps telling you I'm there's something that I'm not seeing. And just like Hitchcock, I think the first time we see what the main character is singing is seeing, all the evidence is on the screen. If you were to freeze the frame, what he is showing you gives it away. Right. But because it's a movie, because we're caught up in the plot, because it's fast, because there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on, it's very well hidden. Yes. Have you ever... Are you a Deep Red fan? Yes. Deep Red hides the twist so well that you have to pause it to see it, but it's right there. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. done that. No, I know exactly what you're talking about, okay. and I have. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> I had that in my head the whole time I was watching it because I was like, oh, he does this again in a few years with Deep Red, which is a movie I might like even more than Bird of the Crystal Plumage. So today I'm watching the movie and um, I am taking advantage of my advanced age because Tony Musante, uh, who isn't well known, but he's known. When I was a child, he had a very popular TV show uh, where he played a detective. Very much like the show Beretta. And it was called Toma. And I think it was only on for a season or two, but that's how I came to know Tony Musante. And between the interview with the female lead, not that female lead, the other female lead, and something (laughs) I read on Wikipedia, I guess Tony Musante was kind of a pain in the ass. Because A, he would stop at Argento's place at 2 a.m., to discuss the role and character motivation. And Argento was like, 
why don't you go home? <laughs> and um, again, the actress who plays one of the two female leads uh, is interviewed on the Arrow disc, and she's very insightful and very loquacious. She had a really interesting career. She was almost a Bond girl at one point. Oh. And she said that back then she could predict that Tony Musante would work, but that he would never be famous. And she goes into very specific reasons why she thought he would never be famous. And I, I thought either this is actor to actor backbiting or this is a very insightful woman. Yeah. In a nutshell, she thought he was too self-possessed. Interesting. He, uh, ironically enough, is the co-lead opposite Franco Nero in the Sergio Corbucci movie The Mercenary that I watched on Western Day, and I did not put it together until I started watching Bird of the Crystal Plumage today, and I thought, boy, I just saw that guy in something. What did I... And I looked him up, and sure enough, he's in The Mercenary. I think, though, that he's perfectly cast in Bird with the Crystal Plumage because... And this is not my insight. I wish this were my insight because I think it's brilliant. The early Argento Jalos, maybe because Bird with the Crystal Plumage was such a big success that he was chasing that and he was trying to give the audience what they wanted, um, feature a character in every film that a film critic has dubbed the ineffectual male. Yes. And try as they might... Argento's male protagonists aren't quite up to the task and wind up endangering themselves and other people. And there's usually another character in the film who's always female who is better at it. And when you consider when these films were made, that's that's sort of revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things I like about them. Well, and this is one of the few kind of early jolly movies that doesn't have like weird psychosexual underpinnings where it's like well she's or he's acting this way because they want to change their gender or you know like something they're seeking revenge for something that happened in the past right which is a, a big motivator in these films right some of them one of the things that I love about the movie is that it keeps introducing these colorful little side characters as he yeah. goes from person to person. My personal favorite is, and I don't remember the guy's name. I know who you're going to say. <laughs> the, he's the guy that he has to pay for information. Um, and the guy just keeps contradicting himself. Yes. I don't know anything. I'm not, I haven't seen anything. I can't offer anything. Now, what do you want to know? That guy. Now, is this... Now I'm getting confused. Is this the same guy that he has to go talk to in prison? No, although I do love that guy, too. Okay, because the thing I like about that is that the two big scenes where the, the, where the male protagonist goes to talk to him, A, the actor's great, but the set is all these glass windows? Yeah. And so, again, you see Argento keep bringing up that visual trope that we're all sort of trapped in glass cases. Well, he's obsessed with glass. I mean, that keeps popping up in movie after movie. Uh, he loves to break glass. He loves to put people's faces through glass. Uh, yeah. 
He's a big fan of that. The, all of the set design, the production design, the architecture, all of it in this movie is completely uh, stunning. That whole staircase sequence with the one murder victim is amazing. Yes. And I'm, I've always been a big fan. I'm going to talk about this without spoiling it. Um, the scene where a character goes out the window. Okay. And, and they're trying to haul him back up. Yeah. Not only the way it's conceived, both in terms of its place in the plot, but also visually, but also that whole apartment building. The first time we see it, it's like, well, that's odd, and it's sort of off. And then later we find out it sort of looks out at the zoo. Right. Um, one thing that was weird, I read somewhere online, someone was asking... If a bird with crystal plumage is ever mentioned in the movie. Yeah, it is. And I have to think, well, of course. <laughs> it made me think that this person had fallen asleep. I didn't explicitly remember where it was, but again, rewatching it this morning, the, the friend of the main character, yeah. I mean, it couldn't be more explicit. He talks about it, and then they go to the zoo to see it. Right. He doesn't, I don't think he says the word plumage, uh, but he does talk about exactly that bird i can still remember i think i was about 10 nbc showed the bird with the crystal plumage on tv one night um and uh it was on late my parents wouldn't watch it but i can still remember even at 10 i thought that title was so weird and interesting <laughs> and it made me want to see the movie and um Network TV used to show a lot more movies than they do now. Yeah. You know, there was Wednesday night at the movies or NBC Saturday night at the movies. They they filled a lot of time slots with movies. And it made me sort of sad that something like The Bird with the Crystal Plumage would play in prime time on a network in the early 70s. Like, come on. <laughs> that... But my parents, my parents would not let me stay up. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, like, you have not always been the biggest Italian horror fan, and even the Argento appreciation is, like, within the last few years, right? Like, when they started, well, I, when Arrow started putting out all those discs? I think what happened was, I was always a fan of Suspiria. Right. I liked that from the first time I saw it, but my real introduction to Italian horror was lesser directors doing Italian horror. So if someone says, I want to show you some Italian horror, here's some movies by this guy named Fulci. Well, you're really not... I mean, I don't want to start that debate, but there are some Italian horror directors I like a lot more than others. Right. That makes sense. And I think... Um, <laughs> you know what I would compare it to? that Chi town movies drive-in thing that uh, our friend Adam Risky drives in from one highway and concludes that it's a, it's a bombed out Ho Chi Minh trail <laughs> of uh, uh, urban horrors. And I drive in from the gentrified side and decide it's not that bad. There's a Dunkin Donuts. I'm I'll be safe, even though I live in the suburbs and that I think my introduction to Italian horror could have been better. Got it. But the minute I started watching the early Argentos, because 
Saturday night, I got into a conversation with friend of the site, Mike Pickley, because he did his final paper for his master's degree on late era. Era. Argento. Right. And we were talking about those films. Because I remember when you and I went to the music box to see the unrated Mother of Tears. No. You saw it, I think, without me. Because I tried to... It's a whole saga where I tried to go to the music box to see it. And got caught in traffic and couldn't and ended up just having dinner with a friend instead. And I didn't catch up with it until DVD and, and now, really did not like it. When, nor did I. But when you saw the DVD, was it the unrated version? It was, yes. Okay, because I'm no shrinking violet, but there's some imagery in Mother of Tears that I found really disturbing. And over the top. It's a very mean-spirited movie, and I haven't read Mike's paper. We talked about it just a little tiny bit online. Um, I've seen, I think, most late-period Argento, and I'd be hard-pressed to defend most of them. I can't think of many directors that I love that have fallen off. I mean, this is what... Quentin Tarantino is always talking about that at a certain point you should just stop you should just stop and I don't know exactly when I would say maybe Argento could have stopped because he still you know um, I don't know if you watched Masters of Horror but he did two episodes that are both kind of good no I remember those um, Pelts and what is the other one Steven Weber wrote it and it's the girl's name uh, son of a bitch. Anyway, <laughs> I can't remember what it's called, but everyone look it up. Yeah. The, the gist of this conversation with Mike though, and I might be wrong because I can't understand anything anymore <laughs> is that the version of mother of tears that he watched for his paper was not the unrated one. Oh, okay. Because as interesting as I thought some of it was, there was some imagery that was hard for me to watch. Yeah. And that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. No, back in the day, um, the episode was called Jennifer, by the way. Um, Thank you. Back in the very first year of the site, when we did our very first Scary Movie Month, you and I did an episode on, here's our favorite uh, horror movies. Yeah, And then we did like a part two. It was actually all just one episode, but back then we used to split them up. Uh, part I two. Remember. Here's our least favorite horror movies. And one of the I movies remember. I named was Dario Argento's Mother of Tears. Now, me in 2021, there's no way I'm putting that movie on the list. Um, for a number of reasons. One just being I like Argento too much to claim that one of his movies is one of the worst horror movies I've ever seen. Surely I've seen worse horror movies. Even uh, a bad Argento movie is going to be slightly better than some of the shit I've seen. Um, but I think it, it affected me in such a way. I found it so off putting exactly what you're talking about. And so dark and mean spirited that I just felt it was so ugly that I put it on that list of my least favorite horror movies I wouldn't do that now, but I see what I was reacting to, and it's exactly what you're talking about. Right, and sometimes 
I'm thinking of, in my case, it was always Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, mm-hmm. which the first time I saw it, there was material in that film that really bothered me, that really shook me. And that doesn't happen very often. And so I sort of blamed it on the film. It was it was touching me in a way I didn't want to be touched. And since then, because this was a long time ago, I've come to understand that that's what makes the film so great, that McNaughton was able to do that. I mean, he he said in interviews, one of the definitions of horror film is to horrify. Right. And that's what I was trying to do. Right. And I was used to seeing films that only you know, sort of crept up to one of the lines and didn't go all the way. The only thing I remember from the worst horror films podcast, which I recommend that everyone listen to. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) And if you can find a way to do it is um, that night I talked about night of the lepus. Yes. Which at that time, very few people had seen for a number of reasons. And since that time, it's a lot easier to see and Sven shown it and stuff. And people can see that I was not, I was a not making it up and B not exaggerating. It's terrible, it's but crazy. again, but I almost that's another one that I almost wouldn't call one of the worst horror movies ever made simply because it's so entertaining. Right, but then you get <laughs> then you get into this uh sort of philosophical argument that I do not wish to get into. <laughs> that um you're sort of enjoying the film in spite of the filmmakers. Sure. Yeah, I understand that. I don't care if you're incapable of making something that is that is conventionally entertaining and makes sense. I can be entertained by anything, goddammit. Well, I don't think that's true. I think there are movies that will not entertain anyone. I think Joe Bob just showed two of them the other night, which isn't even fair because I know there are fans of both Things and Sledgehammer. Um people online we're talking oh i love these movies you know so there are fans of everything um but this is you know the conversation we get into all the time about something like yeah. plan nine like you can't call plan nine the worst movie ever made you just simply can't for a lot of reasons um, and i don't want to deny anyone pleasure but uh, i saw sledgehammer for the first time last friday and it may have come closest to fulfilling Stephen King's famous epithet, <laughs> the work of morons with cameras. Yeah. I mean, I, to be fair, I didn't make it the whole way through the movie because uh-huh. I you decided to watch a Western instead. I did. I was like, I could sit here for two hours and watch a movie that I am not liking. Um, and that is deliberately wasting a lot of my time. Now I do actually plan to go back and watch it on the replay, but like, it was deliberately wasting my time with all the slow-mo and the establishing shots. And like, and I said, well, I could instead watch a Western that I'm going to like and fits the June exploitation theme. Uh, and in one, of, in one of Joe Bob's cut-ins, he had devised this elaborate critical explanation for why the filmmaker was doing something and then was chagrined when he learned that the film was short. And so... All that slow motion of buildings was to pad out the running time, right? which I suspected. Um, it was, I, I stuck it out to the end. I didn't stay for the second film because it looked like it was made by lunatics. But 
I stuck it out for the first film because it's been so long since I've seen a film that looked so much like it was written and directed by 12 year olds. <laughs> There's a scene early on where a man and a woman are in a bedroom and the dialogue is written by a 12-year-old who knows that there's a thing called sex but doesn't really know what it is. Mm -hmm. And so the man and the woman are like, we're alone. Now we can do whatever we want. And like the kid is hoping you don't ask him what that (laughs) is because he doesn't know what it is. And it goes on and on in the same vein. Ooh, we're alone. Now we're going to do those things that adults <laughs> like to do. And I and I found it fascinating. You know what I compare it to? I know recently on the Twitter machine you were uh, you were showing your love for U2. Uh, when the U2 song With or Without You came out, mm-hmm. I thought it came the closest to being a pop song where the lyrics sound like something a high school sophomore wrote in his notebook during a boring class. <laughs> Sleight of hand and twist of fate. On a bed of nails, she makes me wait. Yeah. And I wait without you. It, <laughs> it sounds, it is the definition of sophomore. Tomorrow's a knife. Tomorrow's a big knife. Okay, Harvey Starkweather. <laughs> even that is a um, a joke that sticks in your throat when you realize who the screenwriters yeah. name that character after. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um. Yeah. There's so to get back to you know late period Argento. It's just you watch some you watch something like his Dracula. Or you watch something even like Mother of Tears, unfortunately, and you just, I can't, I have such a hard time reconciling the guy who made The Bird with the Crystal Plumage and Deep Red. And I'm not a huge Cat of Nine Tails fan. Um, Four Flies on Grey Velvet is like, okay, it's it's decent. Um, but, you know, all that stuff in the 70s and early 80s up through, like I think I said, opera Right. Um, I I have a hard time reconciling it as the same guy. And I thought Mother of Tears, because I still remember that music box screening so well. Half of it, I would say, is an interesting attempt to um, go over some themes that are close to his heart. But the other half of it seems to be what he cynically thinks he needs to do. Right. To appeal to Dario Argento fans. Right. And I think that's unfortunate because I think if you stay true to yourself, your fans will come with you, but that may or may not be true. And especially when you look at something like The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, it's not graphic at all. It doesn't feature a lot of brutal violence. You know, you look at something like even Suspiria, which comes out a few years later, and you get those shots of like the girl being stabbed and you see the penetrating her heart, you know, he goes all in on the gore, um, not to the extent of some of his contemporaries, but he is definitely a lot gorier in some later films. Uh, but Bird of the Crystal Plumage is really tame. And I think, again, watching it this morning, 
there was one thing he should have dwelt on a little bit more, and I'm guessing a lot of people who watch the movie um, freeze the frame and maybe even get closer to their set. Near the end of the film, we're briefly shown a painting of a horribly violent incident, Mm -hmm. and it's very disturbing. And this is something that repeats in other Argento films because what's the Argento film featuring the little cartoon of the boy holding the knife? I mean, the opening of Deep Red, are you talking about? Yes. Okay. And and that's held on screen longer, and it's very, very disturbing. And there's similar things in some of the other films. And my memory of that painting was that it's very disturbing, but I was surprised rewatching it this time that it's not on screen very long. And actually, he it would have had an effect on the audience if he had just dwelt on it or shown it in close-up. Because mm-hmm. it's a very disturbing image. Yeah, it doesn't... The movie, he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in... You know, it's much more inspired by something like Hitchcock, and you can tell what a Hitchcock fan he is. Oh, yes. Um but again, it's not. It, what's so cool about it is, and this is, I'm not saying anything new or original, not even close, but like, it's not just. There are few people who love Brian De Palma more than me, right? I love Brian De Palma so much, but you watch his movies and you're like, yeah, okay, he's doing Hitchcock. Um, Argento is doing Hitchcock, but filtered through crazy Italian cinema. And so he's taking it to a different place. So you don't watch it and you don't say this is imitation Hitchcock. This is influenced by Hitchcock, but then it goes to a new place, which is a lot more interesting, I think. And, uh, of course, from the very first film, we get what I have dubbed Argento Red, or if you wish, you can call it Deep Red. Nice. Because within the first five minutes, we see something, I forget what it is, and it's that hyper bright red because then a few minutes later there's um a folder either on the protagonist desks or a policeman's desk and it's not that color it's like an orange so you can see that he's picking and choosing where he uses the argento red right um the other thing i thought for any of you listening to us who are filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers. Um, If you watch just the first 10 minutes of this film, it's really a model of how the first 10 minutes in a film should go. Okay. A lot happens, though it's not rushed. Um, We are plunged into a situation. The film does not waste our time. It's really a model of economy and great visual storytelling because there isn't a lot of dialogue in the first 10 minutes. No, there's not at all. That's, again, one of those amazing what he's able to do in some of his set pieces, both in this movie and then in later films, is he does them almost completely without dialogue. I mean, there's there's dialogue in the sequence where Tony Massanti is trying to help the woman but right. it's very much but like not... open the door. I can't open the. It's not. You don't need it. You know. Um, no, it reminds me of Hitchcock's famous quote that in a really great movie the sound could go out and the audience will still know what's going on. Yeah. 
You mentioned the Argento Red. I forgot, or or perhaps never realized, that this movie was shot by uh, shot by Vittorio Storaro. And I noticed that during the opening credits because I had forgotten that too. And the credit after Storaro is Morricone. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, we're in good hands. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Yeah. Talk about the A team. Yeah. Yeah, for those who don't know, Vittorio Storaro shot a bunch of Italian films and then would go on to shoot a lot of American films and become kind of Francis Ford Coppola's DP of choice and perhaps most famously shot Apocalypse Now for Francis Ford Coppola. And yeah. is like one of the greatest DPs uh, to ever live and Marconi is probably the greatest film composer, I would say. I think you can argue that he's either the greatest or he's tied for first. Uh, Marconi with who? John Williams? Ooh, yeah, Jan really likes John Williams. John, um, it's hard to I, argue with John Williams. No, no, John I Williams is like the Beatles of composing. Talk about recognizable themes, <laughs> but I, I would, I would choose Bernard Herrmann. Ah, yes. I don't think I know enough Bernard Herrmann scores outside of some of the obvious Hitchcock ones. I would actually argue that you could make a case for Morricone because Morricone doesn't have one set style exactly. And, fits the music more to the film in question, whereas Williams sort of becomes a brand. Not that that's a bad thing. Right. Right. Um, Yeah, Marconi worked a lot, you know, like you can watch a lot of these old Italian movies and they they all seem to have scores by Ennio Marconi. What I'm saying is I want to see a Dario Argento film scored by John Williams. (laughs) That would be something. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a John Williams theme <laughs> that like where the melody sticks in your head, but it's it was accompanying violent murder. <laughs> but I guess we already have that. We have the Jaws theme. Oh, good point. There was a whole uh, debate online today about Steven Spielberg never having made a good movie and how Temple of Doom is his worst movie. And this is why I don't go online. I don't blame you at all because in the um in the early morning hours of not being able to sleep during covid uh i revisited some spielberg movies that are less famous okay i mean i don't i i think all of his films had a certain audience and um the two that i watched a couple times a piece were uh, catch me if you can and the paper and I think the paper is doing a lot more than some people give it credit for. And Catch Me If You Can is a very, very wonderful film full of pleasures. Oh, and the third one was A Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies I remember really liking. I only saw it the one time. Catch Me If You Can I remember thinking was great. The paper was the one that didn't really click with me, but it sounds like I need to revisit it. Well, I think he made it in response to what was really going on in this country. Yeah. And he was trying to comment on that using this earlier incident. And, um, I just applaud. It, it seems like we don't get very many films anymore that talk about real stuff. Right. And the paper is very concerned with real stuff, like the power of the media and the press to do certain things. Anyway, um, I have thought for the longest time that that Spielberg has set the bar so high 
that I think sometimes he's judged by a different standard than any other filmmaker. Yeah, he for sure is. And anybody ignorant enough to just say like, well, he's never made a great movie. I mean, that that just makes that is just their, their opinion untrue. is invalid. Yeah, I mean. I refuse to listen. I'm I'm somebody who's like everybody has their own opinion, and we all can believe what we believe, and that's fine if that person wants to believe that. But I don't need to listen to them for one second longer. I am looking forward to his West Side Story. I wish I was more, but it'll be interesting <laughs> to see a Spielberg musical. You know? Yeah, because of course Hook should have been one. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> I'm gonna throw that out. That's. Um, anything else about uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage you want to bring up? I'm looking over my little notes, and we covered every single bullet point. Good job, us. For a film that largely doesn't have bullets in it. Largely. Uh, I was trying to rank my Argento movies as I was watching this. I think I put this at number five. Okay, so you would either for you one is either a Tenebrae or a Suspiria. Let's say Suspiria one, Tenebrae two. Okay, what's three? Three is Deep Red. Four, okay, four? is Phenomena. Oh, okay. I sometimes forget about that one. Oh, that movie's amazing. I think. I think my my list, which I have not made. Um, I would, I would largely pick those films though in a different order. Sure. Um, if anything, uh, rewatching Bird with the Crystal Plumage this morning, um, made me, almost made it go a little farther up the list. Although, uh, I think my favorite is Suspiria for a number of reasons. Yeah. Well, I had wanted to write and may still write, um, an article for a website uh, ranking all of the Argento movies, but I didn't because a, I didn't want to have to revisit some of the later ones <laughs> and B because all the rankings fly out the window after five. It's like, I know it six is opera. Okay, cool. But now anything past that is completely up for grabs. What's the, what's the film where the guy gets shot in the eye through the door? That's opera. Okay, because I showed that damn documentary. Oh, I know. Fear in the Dark so many times that I've seen that sequence over 100 times, but sometimes forget what film it's from. And, of course, that's the documentary that has Argento speaking in Italian, and it's subtitled, and he talks about reading Poe for the first time, and he says, it gave me a strange kind of fever. <laughs> Seeing that sequence in that documentary not only introduced me to Dario Argento, but made me need to seek out opera. And it would be years yes. before I would see it, but it was always in my head. I got to see that movie opera just to see that peephole sequence. See, this is just the service I provided back when I taught film. That's right. To uh, the 17 and 18 year old. <laughs> Well, hopefully everybody's having a great June exploitation. We're only a week in as of this recording, so we still yeah, have. Keep I've been enjoying the little reviews so much. Yeah, definitely. We still have three more weeks to go. Uh, if you are if you are listening to this and you for some reason don't know what June exploitation is, go to fthismovie.com and click on the tab, and it'll tell you all about it. There's a June exploitation 2021 tab. 
at the top of the page there. Um, but it's our month-long celebration of exploitation and genre movies, where every day we watch a different a movie uh, tied to a different theme. So, like, the day this is coming out is Italian Horror Day, so you watch an Italian horror film. Might we suggest The Bird with the Crystal Plumage? And sometimes people come up with very interesting choices or workarounds. Uh, we have one listener who... Um, if they were going to watch a movie that day, had to watch it with their kids, and it was Sword and Sorcery Day. It was Revenge so they, Day. It was, it was Revenge. That's right, because yeah. it was in their write-up. It was Revenge Day, and so they chose The Princess Bride. Way to go. Right? choice. Still participating uh, and working around the theme brilliantly. So uh, hopefully everybody's having fun and having a good month. Jay bones thanks for talking about this movie with me. It was really fun. I agree. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Thanks for listening to FS Movie.